Well, good morning, church. I'm Pastor Jim Davis. I'm one of the pastors here at CNBC, and it's been a week. <laughs> it's been a week. I want to thank everyone for their prayers in regards to Nicole. Um, she's recovering well. Um, three trips to the emergency room. Uh, Sunday was kidney stone. Monday was appendectomy, and Friday was another kidney stone. So they're going to name a wing at LGH after her. So, but she's doing better. She's at home recovering, and I think mom and dad are doing okay too now. So, but you know, it was a blessing last week to be able to come home after the first emergency room uh, trip, to come home Sunday evening from a long day, and to be able to view the live stream of the service. Um, technology is allowing CNBC to do ministry at times and at places that we couldn't have ever imagined. What an impact we can have and are having with technology. And I, w- I just want to thank the team in the back so much for all their hard work for making that possible. It's appreciated. Now, I, besides thinking about Nicole, I've been thinking a lot about job requirements. Not for me, all right? But my three daughters have been actively involved in looking for work. They've been updating their resumes, filling out job applications, reviewing job websites. And every job or position has its own requirements. Some are simple. Like some of them were like, can you get here? (laughs) Do you have reliable transportation? You know, if you have that and you can breathe, we will hire you, okay? Uh, some have educational requirements. Some want you to have previous similar work experience. What does your job require of you? What are the expectations, responsibilities, and duties for the work that you do? Now, mine here at CNBC has other duties as required. I did not read that document very carefully when I signed that. Um, but you know, every single position requires something. And this got me to thinking, what does the Lord require? What does the Lord want us to do? What are his requirements for the job position of being a Christian? Now, I want to make it clear from the outset that we're saved by grace. Um, We were hired to be Christians, not because of our resume or our talent, but like most jobs, we were hired because of who we knew, Jesus Christ. We became Christians, were hired because of Jesus and his work on the cross. It is good to know the boss's son. Amen? All right. But now that we're saved, now that we're hired, what are the requirements of the job of being a Christian? What does the Lord require? I mean, there are ten commandments, you know, but if you read the story in Matthew chapter 19, that wasn't enough for the rich young ruler. Now, I know he was wanting to know how to get hired, how to get saved, but still, there seems to be a lot more required than just these ten. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out 
and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be salt and light. We are to stand out through our lives and through our testimony. Jesus tells us that we have work to do, and as we do this work, our light will shine before others. Paul mentions this in Ephesians. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we have good works to do. We have job requirements. The Apostle Paul further tells us about multiple requirements, things that Paul tells us to put on and take off. So in Romans, we're to put on the armor of light. In Corinthians, we're to put on the imperishable. In Ephesians, we are to put on the new self. And in contrast, in Colossians, we are to put off the old self. In fact, Life Action Ministries, uh, a ministry used to be a part of, has a list of 110 things throughout Scripture we are to either put on or take off. Should I list them all for you? Okay, how about a sampling? Um, Put off bitterness. Put on forgiveness. That's from Hebrews and Ephesians. Put off pride. Put on humility from Proverbs and James. Put off ungratefulness. Put on gratefulness from Romans and Ephesians. Put off prejudice and put on humble respect for all. That's from Acts and Colossians. Put off complaining and put on praise from Philippians and Hebrews. As I said, there's 110 of those. That's enough to overwhelm anyone. I'm a pretty simple guy. Pastor Chris last week talked about I'm a numbers guy. Once the numbers get above three or four, you know, I need a calculator. Now that I've been hired, now that I'm a Christian, what does God require? Can we simplify things just a little bit? Well, there's a passage of Scripture that answers this question. In fact, the Israelites asked this question, and God answered through one of their prophets. So if you'll turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Micah. Now, Micah is after Jonah and right before Nahum, which might not do you a lot of good. All right? Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to just give us some context for the book of Micah. Micah's a prophet. However, he is never called a prophet in his own book. Now, some Old Testament prophets, they're identified by their occupation. So, Amos, he's the shepherd of Tekoa. Some are identified by their father's name. Like Isaiah, the son of Anes, or Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. For Micah, he's identified by his hometown, Micah of Morsheth. Now, this town is located in Judah, what was once Philistine territory. And his name means, who is like Yahweh? And this name is so fitting for this book because God is exalted from the beginning of this book 
to the end. From the opening lines where he announces God's coming wrath to the promises at the end of the book, God is recognized as sovereign. Micah lets us know how big God is. He's not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the whole world. He's the God of every nation. He's the God of justice and judgment and of grace. Now, Micah's ministry happens during the reign of three kings. Jotham, who reigned 25 years, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, the high places were not removed, and people still sacrificed and made offerings on these high places. Then there was Ahaz. He reigned for 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. Then there was Hezekiah, who was the third and final king during Micah's ministry. He reigned for 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He trusted in the Lord so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So we had a good king, a bad king, and then a great king. As one commentator put it, Micah's role was to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. He cries out judgment throughout his book. But he also gives hope. He also lived in very, very interesting times. There's an economic revolution going on during his lifetime. Israel has shifted from a farming economy to a merchant economy. And the use of money has now replaced barter. And material prosperity has come along it with materialism. And also unethical business practices. And there's a growing separation between the rich and the poor. Sounds like today. There was also a disintegration of personal and social values. The temple and religion was losing influence. People followed the spirit of the age. They gave lip service to God. But that was it. Does that sound familiar? The judicial system was also very ineffective. Who you were mattered more than what you did. The rich and the strong were able to oppress the weak. And there's nothing new, the same today. If I'm a Hollywood star or a politician, I can get slapped on the wrist. But if I'm little old me, man, it's going to come down hard. So the scales of justice were and are not balanced. And it's definitely not blind. People were abusing one another, both within and without the synagogue. The people claimed to follow God, but their hearts were far away. They talked about God. They talked about sacrifice, but their hearts were cold. The laws of God to provide for the helpless, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant were forgotten. And so Micah cries out for justice. So with this in mind, the main thrust of the book of Micah is judgment. And we find out why in chapter 1, verse 5. Micah says, all of this judgment for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Sin 
brings judgment. It did then, it does today. And the reason for this judgment on sin is found in God's nature. He is a God of anger and wrath against sin. In Micah chapter 5, verse 14, God says, I will root out your Asherah images from among you, and I will destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that do not obey. So there's going to be judgment, and it's going to be fierce. God's going to take the cities, and he's going to turn them into a heap. He's going to pour down the stones of the cities into the valley, There's going to be lamentation and wailing. There's going to be war. They're going to be conquered. And God says he's not going to answer their cries. This is pretty serious. The good news is that God is not only the sovereign ruler who brings judgment, but he also gives grace. He's a savior. In chapter 7, verse 15 of Micah, it says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt... I will show you marvelous things. He's going to save his people once again like he did with Moses. It also says in Micah that God's a redeemer. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God's also a shepherd. In Micah, he's going to shepherd his people with the staff as in the days of old. Most importantly... God is faithful to his promises. The final verses of Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So it starts out with a God who judges sin and yet a God who's a savior and a shepherd who tends his sheep, who's a redeemer and is faithful to his promises. And in this book, We see how God is going to be faithful, how he will forgive sin. There's a famous prophecy that most of us will remember. We hear it at Christmas a lot. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The coming Messiah. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of our sins. It's prophesied in the book of Micah. And between this judgment of God in the beginning and the great mercy of God at the end of the book, there is a question. In one of the greatest summaries of religion given, 
Micah reminds us what God requires of us as believers. God has declared what is good, the good that we ought to do if we believe in him. So from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Bala, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gigal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This section of scripture has been titled by many commentators as God's lawsuit. It's the indictment of the Lord against his people. So God summons the people to hear his charge against them. He calls the mountains and the hills as a jury because they have been around this whole time and have witnessed God's faithful dealing with Israel. He's calling these witnesses to show the seriousness of the case. He calls the mountains, he calls the hills to listen to this charge. And instead of directly charging Israel which God has already done in some of the previous chapters, God asks Israel if they have any charges against him. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? God is asking his people and us today, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Do you have any excuse for your actions? How have I failed you? Tell me. And the answer is nothing. God has not failed. He has not brought them or us down, but he's actually brought us up he, out of Egypt. It's a wonderful play in words that Micah uses. And as God reminds them, he has not wearied them, but has redeemed them. In Israel's case, it was with Moses. In our case, we've been redeemed by God himself through Jesus Christ. Micah goes further to tell them about how he protected them from evil. 
from the king of Moab and turned the cursing into blessing with Balaam. And the journey to Gigal bore witness to the defeat of Midian, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan, and the conquering of Jericho. All miracles. God was with them. What has God done to them? Nothing. In fact, he has worked mightily on their behalf. So in response to God's question, Israel tries to dodge the question. (laughs) Israel claims ignorance and asks God, what is it he wants? What must we do to be acceptable in your sight? And that is what we are asking this morning. What does God require? The questions Israel asks about sacrifice are so comprehensive. Burnt offerings represent total dedication. Calves a year old represent the most desirable sacrifice. Thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil represent lavish sacrifice. One's firstborn represents one's most valuable possession. One that Israel and us will never give. Because God himself gave it in Jesus Christ. So we can see the impossible cost of the legal satisfaction for sin. Perfect sacrifice, unlimited sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice. It is hopeless. No one can achieve forgiveness through any type of sacrifice. Not then and not now. And to the surprise of Israel... The answer is that none of these things is required. So is there no need for sacrifice? Well, what Micah is talking about is what the psalmist cries out in Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offerings, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do Your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. God does not want sacrifice. He wants obedience. Or in Psalm 50, hear my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goat from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God wants to see a grateful heart. Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wants humility. And the prophets, over and over again, Isaiah, 
Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is not just an action or a good deed that God wants, but a lifestyle, a response, a heart response that's ever flowing. As the prophets and the psalmists cry out, it is not the sacrifice is wrong, but without a proper relationship to God and neighbor, sacrifice is useless. We need a new heart. We need to do the will of God. We need to give thanks. We need to have a broken spirit, a contrite heart. We need to learn to do good. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And there's a second. You shall love your as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But if our hearts are not right, if we do not love God, if we do not love our neighbor, we will weary God with the sacrifice of our praises and song. He will not accept our offerings of time, talent, and treasure. He will despise our very assembly here in this very room if we do not love him and love others. It's not what we think we bring to God that is important, but it's what is in our hearts. Again, in Matthew, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with this rebuke. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees loved sacrifice. They tied everything, even down to the smallest spice. And yet their hearts were cold for others. There is such a closeness between Jesus' reprimand and call for justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and the threefold admonition of Micah to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly with your God. Justice. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble this morning. Unfortunately, this word has such feeling attached to it. People get nervous as soon as you say the word justice. There's two points I want to emphasize. I'm talking about biblical justice. 
what the Bible says about justice, not what the world says. Two, I am so sick and tired of the world taking biblical things like justice and twisting them and making them political. For example, the rainbow. The rainbow is a sign of God's promise. It's not some worldly idea of pride or perversion. The rainbow is ours. Justice is ours. All right? Now, God is a God of justice. And we are created in his image, which means we are to be men and women of justice. Now, when justice can be used about punishment for wrongdoing, most of the time, the Bible uses the word justice to refer to restorative justice in which those who are unrightfully hurt or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. Taken this way, the combination of righteousness and justice that God dictates is a selfless way of life in which we do everything that we can to ensure that others are treated well and injustice is fixed. And that's taken from the Bible project. Also, one final word. Justice is always social. Justice is always social because it involves more than one person. Justice cannot occur in isolation. It cannot occur from other people or other individuals. So justice is always social. And justice is best understood through the context of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. There is no justice without Jesus. He came to set the captive free. And because of our fellowship with the Lord and his love and his grace, we can in turn be channels of his love and grace to others. Now in the Hebrew, there are several words that we use to translate as justice. The word here in our passage is mispot. It's used 301 times in the singular and 123 times in the plural in the Bible. Over 400 times this Hebrew word is used. God is a God of justice. Now, justice in the Bible is not based on a human law code, but it's based on the character and the actions and the demands of God. Therefore, the term justice in the Bible is always theological because justice is about God and his character. If one seeks the Lord, one will seek justice. Proverbs Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Zephaniah, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Again, that is the Hebrew word for justice right there. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Judgment and justice are inseparable. Now, to be clear, there are 50 times in the Old Testament when this word for justice, mispat, 
is paired with another root word that comes close to our idea of social justice, the idea of equity. So again, social justice is a biblical concept and concern. In most instances of the use of this word, we approach the concept of human rights. We see this specifically with the rights of the orphan, the widow, and the alien, the poor, and the needy. The main point is that God wants justice. God demands justice. He demands it from kings. Second Chronicles, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully for the Lord, our God. There is no injustice or partiality or bribery. But God doesn't just demand justice from those in authority. Micah 6, 8 is a verse that indicates the intimate relationship between the vertical and the horizontal dimension of human relationships. So important is justice to God and so rare in Israel at this time that God said he will forgive Jerusalem if only one just person can be found. Jeremiah 5.1 Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. God is willing to spare Jerusalem if he can find just one person who will do justice. Oh, how God wants justice. God demands justice. He seeks justice. He will punish if there is not justice. Deuteronomy, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Again in Deuteronomy, justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. Hey, scripture says say amen. Can you say amen? amen. All right. Emmanuel's going to be disappointed. <laughs> From the Psalms. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah is talking about Jesus Christ coming to bring justice. Three times in this passage, 
Jesus is going to bring forth justice to the nation. Jesus is going to faithfully bring forth justice. And Jesus is going to establish justice in the earth. My Savior cares about justice. One of my favorite verses about justice is Amos 5.24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God wants our, righteous, our, our justice just to flow out of our lives. To roll like a river. And I could go on and on. I mean, I did one just really quick search for the English word justice, and it was 138 verses. And as I said, the one word that we're using this morning, it's in the Hebrew, it's found over 420 times. You cannot but read this book and know that God wants justice. So are we? Are we pursuing justice for the poor, the destitute, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, the immigrant, the afflicted, all who were oppressed? Who do you know needs justice? How have we helped the oppressed? The unborn children, children in poverty or who need foster care or adopted, women in crisis, whether it's sex trafficking or abuse, Men and women being discriminated against, whether it's because of age, sex, race, disability. Who do you know that needs justice? Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the faith chapter. The author tells about the heroes of the faith. And he names person after person and the great things that they did in faith. And then we get to verse 33. And he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. I want you to think about this list. Conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong and of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These are amazing things of faith. And most of them, you and I will never do. But... We can be heroes of the faith with the one item from this list that I did not mention. These heroes enforced justice. Be a hero of the faith. Seek justice. Let it flow out of our lives like an ever-flowing stream. Kindness. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To love kindness. Kindness. The Hebrew word goes beyond our English translation. The Hebrew word has the idea of faithfulness and steadfast love. It's hesed. 
It's the kind of love, faithfulness, kindness that we find in the book of Ruth. And actually, the word here in Micah is the very same word that's used in Ruth. To bring aid and help, to show loyalty. When Ruth stood by Naomi and was faithful to the point of leaving her people to go to a foreign land. Or Boaz was a kinsman redeemer who showed great kindness to Ruth, an immigrant. He brought aid, he gave help, he showed loyalty. This is the type of kindness we're talking about in Micah. It is one of God's highest expectations for his people. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain asked God, am I my brother's keeper? God's answer is yes. Always yes. And in Micah 6, 8, with the Hebrew word hesed, it shows, and I quote, every man becomes every other man's brother. This is the type of kindness Jesus talks about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man interrupts his journey for a stranger. He had compassion. He gave aid to him. He gave up his own animal and put a stranger on it and then took care of him, paying all the medical bills. The Samaritan was a good neighbor. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was a brother to the man. He showed kindness, faithfulness, and love. Hased. He showed Hased. Who is our brother? Who is our neighbor that needs our kindness? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. From Job. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life. Righteousness and honor. Proverbs, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience from Colossians. In Second Peter chapter 1, we read, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. As an aside, brotherly affection is the word for kindness. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want to be effective and fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Peter says, practice kindness. And if we lack kindness, then we are so nearsighted that we are blind. That's Peter. Talk to him. We need to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. We need to practice kindness. So who needs our kindness today? Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, a co-worker, a stranger. 
Scripture says be diligent in doing kindness. Seek it out. Let us be faithful in our kindness. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. This is the climax of the verse. And it's a, a powerful assertion of the importance of humility. Walking means to follow. As in follow someone. In this case, it's following God. It's to, it's to be walking so closely as to be identified with them. It is to have godliness. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus came in humility. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to count others more significant than ourselves. We are to look to the interest of others. We are to have the form of a servant. And we are to become obedient even to the point of death. This is the humility God wants. Because he wants us to be like his son Jesus Christ. To walk humbly. Attached to this idea of walking humbly is the idea of wisdom because a wise person is obedient to God. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A person with a humble mind is a wise person. It is a person who doesn't just listen to God's word, but practices it. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God wants our obedience. If my people 
who are called by my name, do what? Humble themselves. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves there to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Likewise, Peter says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Bible speaks with one voice that it is God who reigns and he is the God who raises the humble. You see, God overturns the secular social reality and he installs a new biblical social reality, a kingdom reality. And whether it's Old Testament prophets or New Testament disciples, they all write in unison that if we want grace, God-given grace, we need to walk in humility and walk in obedience. So what areas of our lives do we need to humble ourselves? What areas of our lives do we need to be brought into obedience to Jesus? What area of our, of our life do we need to walk more humbly with our God? He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what the Lord requires of us.